Dave here. This episode is being released on February 15th, just under six and a half years since I stopped on the big island of Hawaii to visit Robert Nelson, the butterfly man, and convince him to join me in making a podcast by, for, and about street performers. Basically, I wanted this thing to be real, so I willed it into existence, and it's been a really interesting journey filled with a ton of experimentation and discovery ever since. Through it all, I've been supported by some incredible members of the street theater community who saw a value in this endeavor and wanted to be a part of it. Some have captured interviews, some have helped clean up edits, and all have helped ensure that content gets put out on a reasonably regular basis. My sincere thanks to each member of the team. Throughout it all, listeners like you have downloaded each release and provided the sort of feedback that has helped us make improvements and move things forward with each story and each interview that goes online. To you as well, I say thank you. So what lies ahead? Well, I'm not sure. I have a ton of other interests that are increasingly in need of my attention, and as a result, I've decided to stick with things up to and including episode 100. After that, I'm not really sure, but boy, let me tell ya, I sure have had some fun with this thing, and I hope you have too. All right. Let's get to it. What's left on the bucket list? Um, I mean, as a street performer, what is left on your bucket list for things you want to do? Uh, there's quite a few things. Um, I'd like to get a monkey. <laughs> I've always wanted a monkey. <laughs> That's the most ridiculous thing you've ever said. <laughs> No, I, I really like monkeys. I've always wanted a monkey. I've been looking at buying a monkey, actually. <laughs> this is ridiculous. <laughs> this, is, this is your dream for retirement. Yeah, I want a monkey. Yeah? What are you going to do with your monkey? Um, wait, maybe we shouldn't ask that question. I'm just going to get him to work for me. <laughs> Fair enough. Bike boy and his monkey. Are <laughs> you going to teach him how to ride a bike? Probably get away with doing that. Climb the pole, you know what I mean? Do a mini bike boy show with a monkey. That'd be great. So when you stop working, you're going to have to teach him to juggle an apple and a machete and a torch and juggle and eat at the same time. That's a good idea. I think I might start planning that. Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. I'm David Aiken, the checkerboard guy, your host for this growing collection of interviews. Mike Wood once told me that you only really need one good idea in your life to be set. Big money business examples of this range the gamut from Mark Zuckerberg, who created Facebook, to Elon Musk, who made a fortune off of PayPal. And even in the world of street performing, this can be true. In the mid-80s, BMX trick riding was all the rage. All over the world, kids were learning bike tricks to amuse themselves and impress their friends. By the late 80s, the craze had faded a bit from popularity, but for Sean Jeremy Bridges, the love of BMX culture lingered and eventually became the center point for his career. In the decades since, his show has morphed and adapted into becoming one of the most successful street shows on the planet. Bike Boy also has the sort of character that's hard to forget. His speech patterns and delivery are often mimicked by members of the tribe, which has also turned him into a larger-than-life personality in our community. Sure, we love to impersonate the guy, but there's no question that the biggest factor in Sean's success has been his determination, drive, and work ethic. Ben DM and I sat down with Sean during the 2016 St. John's Busker Festival in Newfoundland to chat a bit more about Bike Boy's journey, some of the amazing career highlights he's enjoyed, and how BMX has been a part of it all in a life that's filled with some pretty amazing... Stories from the Pitch. 
so uh, August 7th, 2016, St. John's, Newfoundland. We're here with Sean Bike Boy Bridges. Welcome. Hello. <laughs> and uh, standing by in the background is also Emma, also known as Ben DM. And she will occasionally, because she's from Sydney, chime in when it is necessary to, uh, to tell the truth. Yeah, to clarify any of the uh, <laughs> abstract details that are seemingly. Shawnee exaggeration. Shawnee exaggeration. Sean, Bike Boy Bridges. Where did the Bike Boy come from? Um, the Bike Boy came from Circus Archaeos. Is that what they called you? Yeah, that was my nickname. Because of the BMX? Yeah. And, and I was really quite young. Where did the BMX come from? From a Christmas present. How old were you when you got your Christmas present? I was present? about um, 13. And what was the Christmas present? My um, uncle turned up at the house and started throwing loads of 20s, 20 pound notes around. And... Um, I picked them all up and bought a bike. <laughs> <laughs> now people throw twenties at you. It's funny how things change. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? <laughs> and what was the bike you bought? I bought a Rally Ultra Burner. It was all gold. It's a really nice bike. Do you still have it? No. Do you wish you still had it? Not really, because there's much better bikes. And you've collected a few of those, yeah? Yeah, I've collected a few. When did the BMX stuff start actually turning into performance? Probably around 14. I started to do walk-by. Uh-huh. Me and my friends, um, we used to practice. In and where were you at this point? Glastonbury. You in Glastonbury at yeah. the festival? No, Glastonbury in the, the village of Glastonbury. Oh, I think it's actually a town, yeah. I was born in Street in Somerset. And we moved to Glastonbury when I was about eight. Uh-huh. So we used to practice, me and my friends, in um, a courtyard near St. John's Church, where they have the Holy Thorn. Okay. And um, basically, we... We used to practice and one day we threw a hat on the ground because it was really hot and some American tourists walked by and put money in the hat and we were like, wow. And we looked in it and it was like three pounds and we were like, wow, maybe we should do this more often. So we got a bigger hat. <laughs> okay. And then whenever um, tourists would walk by, we'd start practicing harder and kind of guide them towards the hat. Right. And, and we started to make some money. Yeah, we started to make money. So, so that's your very first taste of street performing. Yeah. Yeah, alright. And did you see other street performers at that time? Um, the first street performer I ever saw, I was about six years old, and I was going to visit my Auntie Anne in Buckinghamshire. We caught the bus to London, and then we had to walk across the city to catch the train. And I saw Captain Kino performing, and I always remember it because my mum was pulling me along, and I broke free of her hand and ran in to see the show. And he 
took the piss out of me because I had this um, jacket on, a sheepskin jacket, and I was dressed up all warm, and he made some joke about me, and I ran off to my mum and told my mum the man had been nasty. <laughs> <laughs> but you remember it was Keno? Yeah, 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 100%. I never forget that face because he had his big glasses on. Yeah. And he's got a, quite a memorable face. Sure. And after that, this BMX tricking and getting some money in the hat was the next experience you had? Um, yeah, that's the next experience, actually doing it with my friends. And then what translated that into the next step of you doing stuff that was more like a full show? Well... When we were children, we, uh, we used to go to Arabella Churchill's house because her son, Jake Barton, had a BMX quarter pipe. Oh, really? Yeah, so we'd go to and his... Look, sorry, to back up, for those who don't know, Arabella Churchill was responsible for the circus stage at the Glastonbury Festival in England and was also the granddaughter of Sir Winston Churchill. Yeah, and she ran a charity, Children's World. Okay, so just to give some background yeah. so people know, yeah. Yeah. And so her son... Jake Barton. Was your friend? Yeah. Okay. He had a quarter pipe, two quarter pipes, trick ramps. Uh-huh. And we didn't have any of the facilities, so we used to cycle to his house, which is about six miles from Glastonbury, and play on his ramps. And plus he had all the good bikes. So whenever he got a new bike, we'd um, buy his old bike. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, so we kind of... Fu- Help support the yes. local yeah. BMX yeah. Nice. And then what happened was we all stopped practicing at the age of about 16. Because... So um, what year is this about? This is 1986. And what's happening with BMX at this point? Um, it stopped being so popular. So everything's sort of winding down, you stop practicing. Yeah, we all stopped practicing and we all went to like, I went to school, back to, to college and did um, a couple of like O-levels. I'm from North America, what is that? What is okay, that? so after school, so you finish school at 16, you do GCSEs and then you kind of either stay on at your school if they have a sixth form or if they don't have a sixth form, you go to an independent college, which is like two years before you then go on to university. And what age are you at this point? 16 to 18. Yeah. Okay. And O-levels are now what we call A-levels. So they're after your high school and before university. Okay, got it. Yeah. So you went to school? Yeah, I went to, to college yeah. and studied that and did my what, O-levels. Sorry, what did you study? Um, engineering, physics, chemistry, mathematics... And sport. And how did you do when you were in college? Yeah, I did pretty well. Because that's something I don't see. Like, your reputation is not that of a scholar. No. But yet you did quite well in school. Yeah, I did very well in school. Okay. Not street performing at this time, or yes? No, not street performing. I didn't start street performing until Arabella met this guy called Haggis McLeod. Uh-huh. He's quite a well-known juggler in Europe, yeah. Haggis and Charlie, yeah. quite a popular um, duo act. Sure. And what happened was, it was kind of a twist of fate, 
because Arabella met Haggis and they got married. Yeah. So we all went to visit Jake because he came back from Australia and we went to Arabella's house because she'd moved to Glastonbury by this time. Yeah. And we saw this juggler and we were all like, wow, this is great. And we watched him juggle and we were all like, whoa, this is cool. And we were like, right, we all want to be jugglers. So me and my friend John Herbert, we both were like, wow, this is brilliant. So we started practicing. And at the time they had a thing called um, the... Oh, I can't remember. It was this government thing where you could start your own business. Oh, so like a entrepreneurial kind of get started? Yeah, it was like small business enterprise scheme, I sure. think it was called. And I signed up on that and said I wanted to be a juggler and an entertainer. And then I was like, oh yeah, I could become a juggler, do the bike tricks, get back into the bike tricks and juggle and do bike tricks and do jokes. So that's what I decided to do. Mm -hmm. And What's changed since then? Oh, nothing. No, nothing's changed. <laughs> um, so how old are you when you made this life-changing decision? I was about 18, I think. And you're now 46? 46. So 28 years later, still at it. Still trying. <laughs> But I was quite lucky because in Glastonbury we have this thing called the Assembly Rooms. Okay. So at the time there was a guy called David Kreps that um, was running the Assembly Rooms. So I would go and practice, get there about 9 o'clock and do about 8 hours practice. Juggling, bike Juggling, tricks. bike tricks. Everything. I'd do like 7 days a week and I had this little book. I've still actually got the book with all the hours I did because I used to write the hours and what tricks I'd learnt and what I wanted to learn and I got quite obsessed with it and um, got really quite good at juggling Haggis was a little freaked out because you know I was juggling all the time and I went from like three balls to four balls to five balls real quick and he's like only doing seven balls and then he's feeling you're like yeah. sneaking up on him yeah and um, basically what happened was the guy that was running the assembly rooms a guy called David Kreps was like after about nine months and he watched me getting really good he went well you can't just practice here what you need to do is go somewhere we need to go somewhere and I was like oh I don't where am I going to go and he goes we could go to Edinburgh Right. For so, the Fringe? Yeah, for the Fringe Festival. This was about 1988 or 89. Okay. And I think it was 1990, actually it was 1989 we went to the Edinburgh. We did a show together called Dipstick and Bimbo. <laughs> I was bim Bimbo and he was Dipstick. And you, you and the other guy is... David Kreps. Okay, so it's David Kreps from the assembly room. Yeah, from the assembly room. All right. We both got the same costumes. He did most of the talking because I was quite um, shy. 
but I did all the tricks. Ah, right, right, right. I'd come up with some really cool tricks, like balancing on the bike, juggling balls, the surfer, and all this other fire juggling and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, first of all, we went to Bath and did a few warm-up shows, which went quite well. And then we did our big step to go to um, Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Um, it was quite lucky because earlier in the year I'd gone to Glastonbury I'm not as a performer just for the experience Okay. and I'd seen Circus Our Chaos and I stood there and watched Circus Our Chaos and I got quite ex- excited by it all and I said I want to be in a circus like that and I said it like with a lot of energy yeah and determination and it was kind of funny because we went to Edinburgh and during one of our performances this guy came up to us who we didn't really know who he was he said his name was Piero Bidon and he said oh I've got a circus here at the moment why don't you come and do an audition I was like what circus is it and he goes oh it's Circus Our Chaos I was like, no, really? And he goes, yeah. So, me and my friend Dipstick, um, David Kreps, <laughs> we went to... Um, it's such a great name. I'm sorry, but that is a great yeah, name. Yeah, it's a great name. It was actually quite a fun show as well. We went and did the audition, and the circus, Piero Bieden said that he wanted me, but he didn't want Dipstick. Right. So, he said to me you can be in my circus and I was quite a young 20 year old at that point and I was like oh I've got to tell my mum first <laughs> yeah so he said well where do you live and I said I live in Glastonbury and he goes well we're going to Bristol and you can um, join us there so we finished Edinburgh and um, we both went back to Glastonbury and at the time I was actually living in this Haggis's house with Arabella at their house oh wow so I told Haggis and Bella that I joined Circus Our Chaos and they were like wow that's that's amazing. quite an achievement you know what I mean and they were all really happy and then the local newspaper got hold of the story and they did a picture of me outside the assembly rooms off to join the circus, run away to the circus. Sure, it's a great story. And um, off I went. Ended up at the circus. They asked me what I wanted to do, and I said I could build a quarter pipe, which is a ramp which you jump on. Sure. And I could jump over the band, and I could come down, do a trick, drop in, and then bunny hop over all the people. And he said that he wanted me to jump on a car. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah. So we tried jumping on a car, but I couldn't actually get on the car. (laughs) So um, what I did is I got a sledgehammer and sledgehammered the front of the car down. Right. About two inches. Yeah. So I could actually jump on the car. Yeah. And then went through the windscreen and so we put a metal cage over the front of the windscreen and we put um, a flat thing on the top 
So I jump on the car, go up the windscreen, land on the roof, then balance on the roof of the car and juggle clubs. Okay. And then on the bike. Yeah, on the bike, I do a trick called toilet paper on the roof of the car. What, what is that? What does it look um, like? It's like you put the front brake on and the handlebar hits the ground and you sit on the back wheel. It's quite a good trick. It's called a Miami Hopper, the uh-huh. real name. But also called toilet paper? Yeah, I called it toilet paper <coughs> because I used to spin the rear wheel between my legs and it's like you're wiping your bottom. <laughs> so I called it toilet paper. And then... I used to do all these tricks as well, like... Um, what was the percentage BMX to juggling at that point? Mainly bicycle tricks. So 70, 30, 80, no, 20? Maybe more like 80, 20. Okay. Okay, so now in your show, there's a lot more... Juggling. Like, yeah, it's like the bicycle is like 20% and yeah. The juggling is 80%. So how did that transition happen? And how long did you work for Sir Chaos? And then how did that all transition? Well, what happened was I went from having very little experience to traveling to Bristol. We went to London. With the circus. And then we went to Paris. Uh-huh. And then... It broke up for three months while it was winter time. And then they invited me back and we had to go to Marseille. So I had to get organized with um, a bus to like transport my stuff and live in to go on this tour because the tour went from Marseille to Denmark to Sweden, to Finland, to Manchester, to Ireland, and then back to London, to Paris. So all over the place? Yeah. All over Europe? So what happened was um, I bought this bus, I practiced in the um, assembly rooms with a whole new experience and all this energy because I knew what I was going to go to like you had a destination yeah it was like you had a goal yeah because performing for our cast was pretty cool because it's like 5,000 people and you really felt like a star and um, it was like really cool it was really mad experience because it was a really crazy circus like all the people there were quite crazy like it was amazing but it was quite crazy because I bought this bus and halfway to driving to Marseille the engine blew up okay so one of the people came from Marseille to come and try and fix the engine he's like the engine the bus is finished so we had to take all our stuff and put it in his truck and I had to live in a tent which was not so great it was quite hot in Marseille and we did all the rehearsals and then we went to Denmark and what happened was in Denmark I was only doing the show in the evening Mm -hmm. so in the day I'd gone to like the walking street there 
in Copenhagen. Yeah, the longest walking street in the world. Yeah, it's great. That and I area. saw some performers there, and I was like, yeah, I should do some busking in the day, and then work at the circus at night. So I started doing a busking show, my solo busking show. So that was the beginning. Yeah. That was really when it started to happen. Yeah. Okay. So you had a full-time gig, plus you were doing these busking shows on the side. Yeah. And you were in Copenhagen for how long? Probably about three weeks. Okay, so that's not that long, really. No, it wasn't that long, but it was long enough. To get a really good taste of what was possible. Yeah. So, back to our chaos. You were there with the circus. You'd done one season. This was the second season. When did that sort of wrap up, and when did the transition between the circus and the street happen? It took a whole... I think it took two years. I think I was with the circus for two years. Or 18 months. And then what happened was they had two circuses running, the Metal Clown and the Buinac Show. And on the same day, the Buinac Show in America, the promoters pulled out and the tent blew away in Dublin. So... What happened was the circus was like financially unstable and they brought both of the circuses together and they called it the greatest show on earth and it really was one of the greatest shows on earth. It was like crazy. Yeah. Like incredible experience to be involved in. And this is what year? Um, this was roughly about 91, 92. Okay. And they continued the circus in London. We were there for a month at Clapham Common. And then we went to Paris. And after Paris, they just, I think they ran out of money or something happened. The promoters pulled out. I think there were some investors who just pulled out, so it never happened. So the circus was done, and what was the next choice? Um, well, I was went back to Glastonbury, and I started to go busking at Bath, uh-huh. which is quite a well-known spot. And then I s- decided to go back to all the places I'd been. So I went to circus. Yeah, I went back to Denmark and did more street shows in Denmark and then I went to the Stockholm Water Festival and did more shows there, but I didn't go to Finland. And then I found a couple of festivals like the Marmo Festival, Aarhus Festival, and at that time they were really good money makers, you know, because... They hadn't seen a lot of street performers. Mm -hmm. So you could make some good money, you know what I mean, Mm -hmm. doing street shows. And the police didn't stop anyone because they kind of liked it. Well, you weren't creating a negative energy, you were creating a positive energy. Yeah. Right. And that really played out well. Yeah. But later on in the... Later on, I went there and the police weren't really too keen. I think they were all over the street performing. So, at this point, when you're doing your shows, it's mostly BMX tricks, or...? 
Um, at that point, my street show was probably about 70% bicycle tricks and about 30% juggling. And how did the transition morph more towards a juggling show with BMX as opposed to a BMX show with juggling? Well, after about... Yeah, oh, you started getting old. Yeah. (laughs) After about 16 years of doing my bicycle show, I started having problems with my ankles. Because of the tricks that you're doing? Because of the tricks. And my lower back started getting pains and one of my knees started to hurt. So I decided that I needed to change my show so I could continue to do shows. Did you ever have any serious medical problems? Um, not really. Nothing serious that needed an operation. Knees, hips, joints, anything? It's just really my ankle started to click. The cartilage started to wear away. So I decided that I really should stop doing as many bicycle tricks and try and do something else. And my back from jumping over the people, I used to jump over six people lying on the ground, or seven sometimes. When you were jumping over these people, were you using like a jump or...? No, just called a bunny hop. It's a technique that you um, use to jump things on a bicycle. So this is still back to your BMX roots? Yeah. But I decided to... um, I've seen this guy, Gavin Hay, on a pole. And he stood on this pole and I said to him one day, would you mind if I was to put my bike on a pole? Because you're the only person I know that does this. And um, he said, yeah, sure. I don't mind you doing it. When was this? What year about? Uh, I think I started doing that about 2006. Oh, so quite a a long time after you did the street shows. It's either 2006. Yeah, I think I've been doing it 10 years now. So the transition was you were doing a bike show and then you transitioned from a bike show towards a juggling show. And then you put your bike on a pole. Yeah. And that was 2006. And what happened when you put the bike on the pole? Um, I beat my biggest hat in Sydney the first day I did my show. I was like, this is crazy. (laughs) I've just beat my biggest hat I've ever done in Sydney, the first show I did. Had you practiced much on the pole before you went out? No, not never. You just made the pole? I made the pole and then... I went and did it. Your balance is good because of your BMX Yeah, tricks. my balance is really good because I can ride a bike, stand on the seat and handlebars. Yeah. And I've got really good balance anyway. I just kind of winged it because I didn't have anyone to hold ropes or practice the trick. So describe it for people who haven't seen the trick. You've got a tripod basically at the yeah. bottom of your pole. It's a three-pronged tripod and then... How tall is the pole? At the moment, it's um, it's three or four. So it's three point eight meters high. Plus the bike, it goes to four point two. So that when you're standing up top, your feet are four point two meters off the ground. To the floor, yeah. To the floor. So you're up on this really, really tall pole, 
And you're doing a juggling trick? I stand on the bike and I balance and I juggle an apple, a knife, a fire torch and eat the apple. And I do a comedy sword swallow. It's a comedy sword swallow with a balloon. Yeah. So there's there's nothing particularly new about the tricks that you're doing. No. But it's the combination of it being something... It's a bike. Yeah. I'd never seen a bike on a pole before. You did it. And I haven't never seen anybody else do it. Yeah. And it's the combination of that and the BMX tricks. I remember when I first saw your show, you were still doing the bunny hop over the yeah. six people. But then the pole was added and then it just changed everything. So now these last 10 years as you've been performing as a... Like everyone refers to it as a pole yeah. act. Yeah. And Al Alakazam is yeah. known for the pole act and Gavin still does his yeah. pole show. And there are other people who are getting up on poles. And people actually, they've commented about He's on a freaking pole. Bike boy put his bicycle on a freaking pole. Yeah. <laughs> but there was a reason for it. Because it looks crazy? It does look crazy, and it's something different than all the other pole acts. Yeah. So the pole show, the concept of the pole show, we're trying to figure out when this started. You said Gavin. Yeah. But the very first pole show I saw was a guy in Vancouver who came down and played English Bay named Andrew. And Andrew. Also from Australia. Yeah, also from Australia. Gavin's Brisbane? I'm not 100% certain where he's from. Maybe South Australia? Okay, so are we, are we kind of figuring that the pole show was kind of grown out of Australia? I think it all came from the Chinese pole then. Chinese pole? circus. Well, the story I heard, which I love from Al, was that he couldn't ride a unicycle, but he wanted to get up high, so he got up on a pole because... He didn't need to learn how to ride a unicycle, and he could still get up really high and still do his show, and that would give him the height. Now, you got up on your pole because you wanted to get the height, but you were also doing it on a bicycle. Andrew got up on a pole, and it was like a big bar stool, and he did the show on this bar stool. Did he juggle? Yeah, he juggled on top of it. Gavin got up on top of a pole, and he was doing five clubs, five clubs which is insane. But then there's this whole proliferation of pole shows that sort of became the new unicycle show. How many are up there now? We've got Bruce doing the pole on the bed of nettles. Yeah. We've got Dan doing oh, yeah, a mini pole Dan with who? a cloud. Dan McLeod. Dan Nemo. Dan, Dan Nemo. Nemo doing Midget on a Cloud. Midget, Midget on, on a cloud. cloud. Bike Boy doing Bike on a Pole. Bike on a Pole. Al doing... Oh. Juggling and spinning stuff on a pole. Pole. Gavin's still out there doing pole and Gavin's juggling. Gavin's still doing it. Then you've got what's his name from Toronto? Who got Opa? Opa. Opa's not in a pole. I sold yeah. him my old pole. Yeah. Um, Didn't Tony do a pole for a while? Tony started doing a pole. Tony Smith. Yeah, she had oh, a yeah, pole. She's got a pole. She did it, and she did it in an interesting way because she's a skier. Instead of having like things that wrapped around her legs, she had something that she put against her shin yeah, so yeah. she could lean forward against but it she's like not a skier. Doing it no, but hers was one of the lightest poles I ever experienced because it was made out of a really thin wall aluminum and it was still strong enough to hold her up. It was crazy. He does Chinese pole. Uh, Ruben. Ruben does Chinese pole. D- uh, what's his performance name? Um, uh, Derek McAllister, but uh, adorable Derek. Is that right? I don't know. Sure. Anyway, Derek McAllister. And then Derek, Derek, Derek. the Mexican guy, 
Pancho. Poncho. Pancho's up Poncho. on the top. <laughs> Pancho. 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 <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's actually a girl doing it, Stephanie. Okay. From Ottawa, um, Paul and Stephanie, the engagement show. She She's does doing a poll. Yeah. Oh, okay. Really? Steph yeah. from, yeah. What's she doing? Paul and Steph. She does something kind of poll. So, is the poll show the next unicycle show? Yeah, I think it's become that, hasn't it? Easier to carry. It's easier to carry. Less complicated. Less complicated. No moving parts. So, is there something to be said for less is more? Like, um, make it simple. Keep I think it simple. the simpler it is, the better. Keep it clean, keep it simple, keep it clear. And from there you can have a But there's like other things of a poll. There's Ben DM, she does a kind of a poll show. A box on a... A box on a stack of other boxes. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's similar. Well, it's it goes... It's not a poll show. <laughs> <laughs> Just to make that clear. It's not a poll show. <laughs> but there's but yeah, this... Yeah, it's got the height. The uh, Some height. Uh, was it the HOD Jeff Cobb and I wrote this great book this parody of a book and it required you to have uh, OPDs on your HOD uh, your HOD was your high object of danger and your OPDs were your objects of perceived danger <laughs> as long as you have those two things your street show is going to be gold that makes sense yeah so you took a formula that was working and you customized it to what you were already doing and then presented it in a way that hadn't been done before, even though all of the elements kind of had been done before, you just put it together in a different package. Different little twist. Yeah. Because it's really surreal. People from a distance kind of stop, and then they, what? There's a bike? What's the bike? Where's the bike? How's the bike? What's going You know what I mean? So they see it from a distance, they want to see what's going on. Yeah, and then they come over. And you get a bigger cut. Yeah. The first day I did it, it was insane. Everyone from everywhere come over. I didn't even have to try and get a crowd. It was just there. How much has been developed since that poll came in? Like the jokes and the the comedy and the presentation. Was there a big transition from what you were doing before to what you're doing now? Yeah. It goes very smoothly now. So all the transitions are smooth? Yeah, everything's smoothed out with comedy and I do this at this point and I say that. I've got all the comedy down for that trick. Sure, sure. Do you have any uh, brilliant stories about things that have either gone right or gone wrong during Um, The best story I've got is quite funny. I was in Darling Harbour and... The main problem is if someone comes pushes the pole when you're not looking, because mm. you really don't want that because then you fall off. And that would be bad? Very bad. And I was performing at um, the motor show when we were still at Darling Harbour. It was like a great time to perform. And I had a nice crowd, and I went and was just about to finish the show and do the juggle and eat the apple and this guy ran out and pushed it as I was juggling and all my juggling stuff flew up in the air and I fell off the bike but my belt caught the handlebar oh my gosh 
So I'm dangling upside down on the handlebar of the bike with my belt, and then I kind of unclip my belt and grab the pole and saw the guy leaving. So I climbed down the pole and gave him a bit of a push because I was quite angry with him and said, don't come back. And then I went to go back up the pole, but the crowd followed the man. And the audience started to take it in turns to hit him. Are you kidding? No, I'm serious. <laughs> and I stood and was beginning to panic because... They had turned, a, your audience had turned on yeah, this guy. Yeah, the whole crowd had surrounded him and people were running forwards and punching him in the head. People were kicking him. I got back on the mic and said, everyone, stop, stop, stop. I'm going to finish the show. I'm going to finish the show. Everyone come back because I was worried for the guy's safety. And he was lying on the ground because he'd been punched a number of times and kicked by mothers and fathers <laughs> and children were kicking him. <laughs> and it was quite crazy and I was really worried for his safety so I pulled the audience back did the show kept looking the guy was still lying on the ground I did the show as quickly as I could I asked the audience who'd hit him and quite a few people cheered and went I hit him you know it was quite crazy and I passed my hat did a really nice hat phoned up the um, security and told them what happened and um, they were like, well, he deserved it, and picked him up and threw him out of Darling Harbour. It was, like, really crazy. The most craziest thing. I still can't believe it happened. <laughs> but that's Australia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, I have another question for you. It has to do with your voice and your pacing. Pacing. Because... People mimic you all the time because I talk like this with a very, you know, very specific and deliberate pacing. It's like you have a really hypnotic rhythm to your show. Was that deliberate or is that just natural? Um, that came about... It's just Sean. <laughs> yeah, it is Sean, <laughs> but like, that's what I want to know. That's what I'm asking. Well, that came about because I started to realize that a lot of people couldn't understand what I was saying so because of the accent or because of the because of the language or, okay. and the speed you know what I mean so I just slowed my talking down and then I realised <laughs> that people were like kind of hypnotised with they, they really are because I used to cycle around in circles talking but that also was hypnotic yeah so I kind of realised at some point, hang on a minute, I'm cycling around in a circle, everyone's watching me, and if I talk at this slower level, then they kind of get hypnotised. And plus everyone can understand, even if you're not that great at English, they work it out. Sure. So that's how that came about. And it hasn't changed. I mean, it's still... Well, it works for me now. I kind of um, like talking slowly because... It takes less effort. <laughs> I kind of don't like shouting at people or be like, I just like to talk very slowly and clearly. And, you know, 
I'm not really into shouting at people or, you know, which going leads, too fast. This leads me to my next question, which is, you've, like, I think for a lot of people in the world of street theater, you've kind of got this rough image, like you're a tough guy. But in the last few years, every time I've met you, you're like the sweetest guy on the planet. So where does this tough guy image come from? Um... Not really that sure. Um, I mean, you look like a stocky little boxer or something. Like, I'm not really a tough guy. I never have been. Um, but I do look like a tough guy. I think people like just judge you on the way you look Your rather than sit down and talk to me and find out who I really am if you know what I'm saying sure has that ever been a negative for you that sort of um, perception yeah, of you because when I started getting tattoos I noticed a massive change on my crowd building ability people wouldn't come to the rope as quick they would look at me and be a bit cautious you know I have noticed that but it kind of works in my advantage as well because they make that judgment and then they watch me and listen to what I am and then they uh, feel a bit mean. To have misjudged Yeah, you. and then they come to the rope, you know what I mean? And they probably, you know what I mean? They, I think that's helped me with my hat as well and because they judge me and then they realise that they've misjudged me and then when it comes to the hat... They kind of have a little bit of guilt, so they give me a little extra, you know what I mean? Or, a you know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Sure. Like, so I think it's worked for my advantage as well. Yeah. My disadvantages have become my advantages. You've turned a negative into a yeah. positive. Nice. Nice. So, yeah. Now, we were talking the other night about how you just happened to, at the right time, because of your interest in BMX bicycles, you started going around, it was Australia, right? Yeah. When you moved to Sydney and you were there. And you started to see all these old school BMX bikes and started buying them off people. Tell, tell us a bit more about that. Well, I've got quite an obsessive personality. Um, I'm quite obsessive about things and I really like bicycles. So what started to happen was I'd be driving in my car to work or I'd be driving to go and fix something or get something organized and I'd see a kid on a BMX and I'd be like, wow, that's a Californian mongoose. Oh my God, it's got red line flight cranks. You know what I mean? Or, no, that's why I'm okay. asking. Yeah. It's got these really rare flight cranks which are really collectible uh-huh. that, you know, I couldn't really afford them as a child, but they're on the bike now. Right. So what I'd do is I'd chase them in my car and go, hey, 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 excuse me, excuse me, I just want to ask a question about your bike. And they'd normally stop, and I'd get out, and I'd say, do you want to sell this bike? And they'd be like, no, 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 no. And I'd go, 100 bucks? And they'd be, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so I started to acquire all of these bicycles. Now, this is the big peak for BMX when you were riding as a kid was like mid-80s, right? Yeah, the peak was 1983 to 85 to 86. 
And what I love still about your show now, even today, is that you have music from that era yeah. in your show because it's a throwback. It's like references your history. Anyway, so you get you, you get out of your car, you find these bikes, and, and over time you started collecting? Yeah. Over time I started collecting. At one point I had 150 bikes in my garage. <laughs> Just because you really liked these bicycles? Yeah. And what did you do with them all? I just piled them on top of each other. Because you, cause you couldn't afford them when you were a kid? You wanted to yeah. as an adult? Well, I just liked them. You know what I mean? I was like, I was like collecting them and I was like, oh, you know, one day I'll clean them up or I'll do something with them. You know what I mean? And I just kept doing it. So you're still doing shows all the time. You're still working all the time. No, I'm not, not as working as much as I used to. I used to work seven days a week. Now I just work two days a week. No, the weekends. Sometimes it doesn't even. You don't. You don't always come down, Sean. You might get take. Well, I try and get down at least two days a week. Yeah, it's my. Uh, you go through phases of not coming down for a while if it's like hot and crap. Uh, I don't really want to do any crappy street shows. I got another thing I want to ask you about, and this is that. For a lot of people who visit Sydney, you're the house where yeah. street performers go. How did that happen? Um, well, I'm not suggesting that everybody listening to the podcast look up Sean Bridges on Facebook and send you messages saying, hey, I'm coming through town well, and stay with you. But you have been a pivotal point for people who are touring. Like Tons of performers stop at your house. Well, when I had an apartment at Darling Harbour, a few performers would stay there. And then I moved to my house that I live in at the moment in Arncliffe. And it's quite a big house and there's quite a lot of space. And a lot of my friends that I've met in Canada come and stay there. And... You know, it's quite nice to have performers stay and it's quite nice to help performers because a lot of people have helped me in the past with accommodation. So, you know, it's nice to help people. It's nice to have other performers around. It's part of the family. Yeah, it's nice. It's good. It's good to support it, you know what I mean? Mm. Like, I've had quite a few performers stay. I've even had the Calypso Tumblr stay at my house, which is quite crazy. Were they performing in Sydney? Um, they were at Coss Harbour. I even drove them around toward the pitches. So they could know where to work? Yeah. I wasn't feeling like working, so I just drove them around, dropped them off at the pitch, and then they'd call me and I'd go and pick them up. So that whole tough guy image is a, a fallacy, really. You're a, you're a softie. Uh, I'm not a softie, but I'm not really a tough guy. I won't let people take advantage of me, but I'm not going to um, hit anyone, you know what I mean? I'd rather talk to you and explain to you, look, I don't really like the way you're treating me. Right. I'm not going to hit people, I'm not really a, a violent person at all, you know what I mean? What do you got to say for performers who are just starting? I mean, we talked about this the other day, that there's not a lot of people as in the new generation coming up. Yeah. Um, for performers just starting... Go out there and do your best every day. and Don't judge yourself by everyone else. You know what I mean? If you're just doing your best and never give up trying, you know what I mean? You've got to practice and you've got to 
find something original and you know try not to drink too much and don't do drugs um, yeah you had a couple of things you were saying that there's there's things to be cautious about it was drinking smoking yeah gambling if you can avoid the pitfalls of yeah. this lifestyle you can have a successful life like a lot of performers they drink too much which is kind of silly you know what I mean you don't really want to be working all day long to drink mm. you know have a drink once in a while that's good but not you know what I mean all the time you've got to take care of yourself you know if you want to have a long career if you look at all the performers that have a long career that are still performing after 20 years 25 years you know what I mean most of them are not big drinkers and they all eat well you know what I mean look after themselves and they're not doing they're being sensible with their tricks like if you're doing something that requires a mat you should get a mat you know what I mean it's worth the effort you know to try and save your knees or whatever you know what I mean and stretch and you know just try and be sensible mm-hmm. like it's all very well I'm a street performer I'm invincible but you're not so be careful yeah but I think there's still plenty of years in street performing you know that all the festivals seem to be getting better organised and you know there's lots of opportunities to be had still so it's worth getting into I asked you about the bucket list before. You didn't really give me a final answer. What was, what's left monkey. on the, yeah, apart from the monkey? Yeah, um, yeah beyond the monkey. <laughs> what else are there? Festivals you haven't done that you want There's to do? There's a few festivals I haven't done, which I'd like to do. I'd like to do Edmonton Street Performers one time, maybe. The one in um, Ireland, I'd like to do that. I'd like to do Christchurch. I'd like to do the one in Dubai. There's a few festivals I haven't done yet, which I'd like to do. But, and I'm going to say this from the perspective of somebody who's in the world, your name and your legacy is going to continue on well beyond any of these little spots on your bucket list that you ever do or don't do. Your name is synonymous with street performing, and you've had an influence on a generation of people who came up mostly after you. But your influence has been felt within the world. And what do you feel your biggest contributions to this world have been? Um, Well, I've made a lot of people happy, which is good. And I've helped quite a few performers as well. There's quite a few performers that I've helped and then they've helped me. One that really stands out is a guy called Bruce Ganja the Great off the radar off the radar he's very much off the radar me and him we used to work together at Wharf 2 and we both really um, helped each other pushed each other yeah because it was like he was the apprentice and I was the master and then he got better than me and I'm like what my apprentice is better than me and then I'd get better than him you know what I mean so we really pushed each other you think that's a good thing to find somebody who can push you yeah definitely 
and there's a few other guys I've helped but now um, you know I just want to try and help myself (laughs) 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 and with that (laughs) final thought (laughs) <laughs> and scene click uh, thanks Sean thanks thanks for contributing your voice to the project and thanks for contributing your talent to the world of street theater thanks you're awesome David and uh, Ben Diem thanks for being here to make sure the facts were checked and uh, everyone was kept in line good night good night Stories from the Pitch is produced by the Busker Hall of Fame and is made possible through the efforts of a dedicated team who share a passion for the recording, editing, and presenting of these interviews. This episode was proudly sponsored by Dolphin Creative, a company dedicated to supporting street theater and all of the incredible characters who make up this world. Wherever you perform, Dolphin Creative salutes you. For more information, please visit dolphincreative.org. And huge thanks to Stuart and his team for sponsoring this episode. If you'd like to support what we're doing, please do consider swinging by the Busker Hall of Fame website and throwing a little love into our online hat by clicking on the donate button. Or become a sustaining supporter of this project at patreon.com slash buskerstories. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help grow this resource and generate more content. So thanks in advance for supporting this project and helping us keep busking history alive. Music for this podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Simply go to your favorite app, type in Stories from the Pitch, and download away. If you're accessing this content via iTunes, we'd love it if you could take a moment to leave us a review and give us a five-star rating. It'll take just a minute or two, and it means the world to our production team. Got a story to tell? Something you think we could improve? A performer you'd like us to interview? Or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor of an upcoming episode? If so, drop me a line at cbg at buskerhalloffame.com. Haven't gotten enough Busker Hoff content yet? Well, then check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Fame. Follow us on Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube, or sign up for our newsletter. Links to all of these can be found on the Busker Hall of Fame website on the right-hand side of the page. And just before wrapping things up, if you've ever wondered to yourself, should I become a street performer? Well, Bike Boy sums it up in a way that few others can. If you want to travel the world and you want to stay alive, I think... Street performing is an amazing way to, like, have a crazy life, you know what I mean? On behalf of myself, story editor Magic Brian, who handled the preliminary edit of this episode, and the rest of the staff of the Busker Hall of Fame, we hope this finds you well. And as you perform for audiences around the world, please remember to use your superpowers for good. I'm David Egan, the Checkerboard Guy. Thanks for listening. I'd like to get a monkey. <laughs> <laughs>